1: today.
0: It's Friday, June 29th, 2018, and you're listening to Up to Date from Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis.
1: And I'm Kishore Hari.
0: So if you're a democratically leaning individual in the U.S., it's been a kind of a rough week.
1: It's been a strange week, for sure.
0: Uh, Culminating in the announcement that Justice Kennedy, a moderate on the Supreme Court, is going to be retiring at the end of this term, at the end of July. And I think that's put a lot of people into a panic. I've seen a lot of people on Twitter trying to offer um, Justice Ginsburg vitamins or a liver or a kidney if she needs it.
1: Yeah, And uh, I I don't know if you saw the documentary on her life that came out, uh, The Notorious RBG. She sort of Renowned for having this like incredible workout regimen and and being really full of vitality, even though I think she's 85.
0: Yep. And uh, Justice Kennedy is 82. So, you know, she's uh, she's his senior. But there is good news from science with respect to the chances of RBG uh, continuing to be notorious for decades to come. What's that? So there's a new study that came out uh, from Italy. Uh, The lead author is Elisabetta Barbie, and it's in the journal Science. And essentially what the study has shown is that by looking at people who are over the age of 105, what they've noticed is that uh, death rates plateau after a certain age, which is, you know, somewhere around there. So when we think about like, okay, when you're first born, there's a high risk of death in infancy, and then the rate kind of drops down until you hit somewhere in your 30s and then that rate starts creeping up. And then, you know, somewhere in your 60s, 70s, 80s, depending on where you live, it starts to go up exponentially. So it kind of like flies off, you know, the the chart, which, of course, is scary for anyone. But if you make it past a certain threshold, and that threshold has been debated, whether it's 80, um, whether it's higher, uh, it seems that like sort of lifestyle factors, which seem to be particularly important up until then really become less important. And then it's all about genes. (laughs) And so if you can make it past a certain age, it seems like your chances of living even longer are actually pretty good.
1: Does this study say it's over 105? I can't believe there's that many people <laughs> over 105.
0: So, yeah, they actually looked at something like over 3,000 individuals. Uh, there's
1: 3,000 people that are over 105 years old. Or that
0: have lived over uh, 105 in the time period in which uh, they looked. So, people, it was, I think, people who were aged 105 and older between 2009 and 2015. And by the way, they're all Italians. Um, And they found a total of 3,836 documented cases.
1: So I I have to go back to something you said earlier. So how much of this is like, if you just live that long, like if you make it to your 90s and 100s, it's probably because like you're just living in a way that is conducive to you surviving. You have probably a low risk lifestyle. You probably have had like habits over your lifetime that have, led to like a certain kind of health conditions amongst yourself. So how much of that is what we're talking about as opposed to like some sort of like genetics or anything like that? Yeah.
0: So th- these are questions I think that, that people who study super agers have been really trying to answer. And and the consensus overall of my reading of the literature seems to be that actually if you hit hundred it's really genes, you know, so you hear these stories of like, I have a cigarette and a martini for breakfast every morning, and I'm 106. Right. And so that doesn't mean that most of us should be having a cigarette and a martini. For I gotta breakfast. hang out with 100 year olds
1: more. <laughs> wow, that sounds um, fun.
0: So yeah, I think that that's sort of what what, you know, it seems like over overall, uh, genetics take ma- take on a much bigger role uh, than environment, uh, up where which plays a much bigger role, you know, up until 80. So I just think that this is kind of nice. Uh, I mean, and so okay. So one of the implications here is is uh, this kind of refutes a previous study that came out showing that you know by looking at that exponential curve, that humans really um, have a a uh, limit as to how long we can possibly live, and people were putting that limit up to about 115. And there's only like there's a woman who lived to 122 in France. and So she was kind of an outlier. But people are saying, look, you really the human lifespan just can't get past 115. Um, Now, this new research suggests that, well, hang on a minute. Why would that be the case? Because all of a sudden that curve goes from being exponential to really flattening out and maybe even plateauing.
1: Oh, I look forward to living to 150 then.
0: So yeah, if, if if RBG can just make it for like another decade or so, she, could, I mean, she could be on the Supreme Court for another 30 years.
1: <laughs> well, for my story this week, I wanted to talk about methane gas leaking out from power plants. We've actually undergone a pretty significant change in our energy makeup here in the U.S. over the last 10 years. Now... Natural gas is the leading energy source for electricity in the country. It's about 32% of our total makeup, which has largely replaced coal as the leading electricity generator. And with that comes some problems like generally seen natural gas is seen as as cleaner than than coal because of the way it burns It, it like it produces less CO2 and other pollutants. But one of the things is methane is a big potent natural gas, somewhere between 10 and 80 times more potent than CO2 when it gets to the atmosphere. And so there are a lot of concerns about how these natural gas facilities, how is methane might be leaking out of places and escaping directly to the atmosphere, both from an environmental perspective, but also the industry cares because that's just lost product. That's Mm -hmm. just lost energy. Uh, And a recent report came out in science uh, about two weeks ago that analyzed what the leakage looked like. And they pegged the rate at about 2.3%. That actually doesn't sound like too much to me. But when you factor in what the EPA thought the leakage rate was, which was 1.5%, that percentage actually accounts for about 13 million tons of methane gas just because of the scale of production that we're talking about. And industry has decided to get heavily involved in this. ExxonMobil has actually decided to invest a lot in all of these like pipe connectors and storage tanks that the, these leaks are coming from uh, to try to reduce their rate of, of loss by 15% in just the next two years because that is just lost money. Estimates PEG. That this much methane being lost costs the industry about two billion dollars in just sort of lost product, uh, and they're actually coming up with some new techniques to find it. So a lot of them are using drones armed with IR cameras going around these massive, you know, natural gas facilities to identify and find the leaks. And this paper indicated that, you know, while it won't pay for itself, you can pay up to like 75% of the cost of repairing the leaks by just all of the recovery of the gas itself. So there's a big question on whether industry is actually going to take the lead on this and try to tamp down on all the leaks that are out there. The EPA is naturally, especially given that it's our US EPA in its current state, is questioning the studies of veracity and claims. But at this point, I see this as actually a really hopeful story, because this is one where Industry and science have come together and said, like, oh, this is a a thing that we should solve. It's a lot of hard work. It's going to take, you know, a couple years to do this, but this is something that we can do. And just for those out there that are like, hey, this isn't that much methane, this accounts for about a third of the methane produced in the US per year the rest comes from cow farts. And yeah, algae I mean, I was, gonna, I was gonna
0: say, I was gonna say, like, but but a third is quite a bit. I mean, I, I was, you know, I was expecting you to say, well, this is just 1%. And you know, the cow farts are the rest of it.
1: No, this is a pretty significant contribution to the total methane production, right? Eh? Well, I mean, everyone talks about cow, cow farts. Actually, the one that that uh, is a, a a pretty significant production that we have nothing with there's nothing we can do about it is actually algae, uh, just hmm. growing in, in like certain water ponds. So there's just methane rising off those ponds. And But there isn't really much we can do about it. Algae, just like cows, doesn't like to obey our uh, rules and regulations.
0: Except we could potentially uh, stop the climate from changing. Eh, that (laughs) seems like too much work. (laughs) That seems like a hard problem. Well, I have another hard problem that that scientists seem to be getting closer at uh, potentially solving or at least learning more that, that uh, can give us useful information. So, you know, here in California, we're always consider, you know, concerned about the next big earthquake. And uh, there's, you know, in the last few years, there have been some scientific studies that have come out that have said, look, in the next 30 years, there's like oh, 100% chance of an earthquake being stronger than, you know, 6.7 on the Richter scale, um, which is pretty scary if you live in San Francisco or L.A. or anywhere else in California. But uh, a study that came out this week in the journal Lithosphere with Suzanne Janneke as first author, uh, found a a kind of structure uh, near Palm Springs that seems to be a likely candidate for the next big earthquake. So it's part of the San Andreas Fault. And it's this kind of like ladder-like structure. So there's a whole bunch of of parts of the fault, I guess, that are um, sort of overlapping onto each other. And it seems to be likely that this particular part of the San Andreas Fault is going to serve as a fuse for the next uh, earthquake.
1: Meaning like if it ruptures, it's going to cascade and rupture other areas along the fault?
0: I think meaning that it's likely to rupture, uh, that the way that it is, you know, oriented geologically makes it um, susceptible to rupturing. Um, And it, it lies just along the eastern edge of Coachella Valley. Um, so, you know, if you like the Coachella Festival, you might want to consider bringing your earthquake safety kit uh, next time you go. But yeah, I think to me, you know, it, it was something that um, apparently people thought was going to be really impossible to find and document. And it took her a lot of grit and her team a lot of grit and a lot of perseverance to actually survey this, this area to the extent that they did. And it paid off uh, because she found that there is this really kind of highly folded and faulted structure that seems to be a likely candidate. And I, so I think if, if, she's, if she's right, I mean, you know, we don't want a earthquake over seven uh, on the Richter scale anytime soon, but it's inevitable, then that might really lead to uh, a sort of more influx of, of money and funding into this kind of research. Uh, because if we really, you know, the first step of figuring out how to prevent earthquake damage is to figure out when and where it's going to happen.
1: And when being a very complicated uh, factor here, like where is, I think we can all wrap our head around the idea that, scientists are able to identify like the probability scenarios for certain things based off of historical records or geologic Mm -hmm. formations. And generally these have windows of like 30 to 50 years. They're pretty broad. And I think if you get a geologist in the room or seismologist in the room, they'll tell you that even those have pretty significant error bars on them. But what is interesting is you can then take the building codes in those sectors and, and increase them, you can work with insurance to to come up with new ways, and even though like a magnitude seven sounds like a big earthquake, now we have the capability of building structures that largely minimize damage from earthquakes even that big and what I think is so fascinating about this is I think two years ago uh, we passed a bill here in California for an early earthquake detection system, uh, which sounds like a weird thing, like we can't predict when earthquakes happen happen, but With these detectors in deep in the earth, we're able to sort of pick up maybe about 10 second warning about when earthquakes are about to happen. And that tends to be enough information for people to get to a safe spot in their homes or businesses. So I think all of this like idea of like pinpointing where the likelihood is and then using that information in public policy to better design our cities. I think this is like wonderful.
0: Yeah, and, and I d- certainly will sleep better tonight knowing that it's actually pretty far away from, if you look at the San Andreas Fault, you know, it goes right through San Francisco, it goes right through the Bay Area, it goes right through a number of different cities. And this area is sort of like on the coast of the Salton Sea, which is in some ways the most desolate part of the fault. Um, so that's a little bit comforting. That doesn't mean that, you know, they do predict that some like 15,000 buildings are going to get affected. But, you know, it's better than having it being in the center of... San Francisco hey
1: we have some other faults up here that could <laughs> rupture too
0: yeah we have, we have lots of faults alright so on that um, that's the end of our up to date episode for Friday June 29th and I'll look forward to our interview on Monday who are we talking to Kishore? I'm
1: talking to uh, author Randy Hutter Epstein about her new book on the history of hormones and by the way it is a weirder history than I could have ever imagined
0: well hormones are weird so that sounds really interesting we'll see you guys next week